Thanks for joining us at Emmanuel Christian Community as we look at the book of Nehemiah from the Old Testament. Nehemiah was, in one sense, a regular guy. He was a layman, not a priest or a prophet, just a guy that believed in God and was open to God using him. He was full of passion and love for God and does everything in his power to lead the Israelites into a new era of devotion to God. (laughs) And it doesn't work. So as we consider Nehemiah, we will observe his strong leadership qualities, which were necessary to complete the task at hand. But we'll also look at some of his flaws and hopefully we'll learn from him. Ultimately, we're looking for the heart of the matter. And if we look close enough, we'll see it. Today is our last message in Nehemiah. And all along the way, we've been asking about the heart of the matter. And today we get to see it clearly, the heart of the matter. We ended last week with joy. Thank you, Alistair, for that. Joy on top of joy. Nehemiah 12, 43 says, And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women, the children also rejoiced. The joy of Jerusalem was heard from far away. What if these two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, what if they ended right there? What, what would you think the main message of the book would be? Based on that verse, I think it would be joy, right? And in one sense, that would be a very satisfying way to end this story. Just to kind of wrap it all up and put a bow on it. It's a done deal. Joy. But that is not how the book ends. Not at all. Let's look at this last chapter together. Chapter 13 of Nehemiah. So turn there with me. And, and to set this up a little bit, an important detail we need to know is that after this wall was completed and they had had this big party, Nehemiah left and went back home. He went home to Susa. That was where home was for him, which is uh, in Persia then and now is modern day uh, western Iran, just north of Kuwait. So we're not sure how much time had passed between chapters 12 and 13. So when we pick it up right here in chapter 13, it's after he's returned from Susa and he's been gone for at least probably two, maybe more years. All right. So let's read verse one, chapter 13. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. Now, we don't have time to dive into the history of these people, the Ammonites, the Moabites, uh, at all, but, and, and the reasons that they were excluded, if they really should have been excluded. But what I find interesting is what happens just two verses later. Let's look at verse 3. Turn with me to verse 3. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Wait, What? That's quite the jump, wouldn't you say? I mean, what they read was no Moabites or Ammonites, but how they interpreted it was basically anyone who's not Jewish. And by the way, by the way, the woman Ruth from the Bible was a Moabite, and Jesus himself was a descendant of Ruth. Anyway, it gets worse. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 4. Now, before this, Eliashib, the priest, 
who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah. Remember Tobiah? He and Sambalot have been the villains all along and have stood against Nehemiah and the building of the wall, right? So Eliashib prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. So I'm sitting here thinking, it says in verse 3 back there, they decided to kick out all the Ammonites, no Moabites, and basically anyone who's not Jewish. But did they really? <laughs> in fact, one specific Ammonite named Tobiah was not only not kicked out, but he was given special privileges by a priest in the temple. The priest, by the way, just so happens to be his father-in-law. It sounds like a soap opera, doesn't it? And this chamber that he had taken over is a room in the area of the temple called a storehouse. And, and just real quickly, it's a place where goods were stored for those people who worked full-time at the temple. They had full-time jobs at the temple, the Levites, the priests, the singers, etc. These were basically full-time employees at the temple, and that's where their stuff was kept. And so Elisha had taken all those things out and had set up an Airbnb for his son-in-law. Nehemiah gets back in town and discovers that all of this stuff is going down, and oh, he gets angry. Oh, does he get angry. Look at verse 8. And I was very angry. <laughs> and I threw out all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. And the story keeps going on. But just, just think about this for a second. He's kicking out Tobiah. And he also decides that he's done with him. And he also gets the people to bring back goods and restores the rooms and invites the staff to return. They had probably gone to their hometowns and gotten other jobs or whatever. And then he offers a very interesting prayer. Look at Verse 14, O oh Lord, remember me, oh my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. God, I hope you're paying attention. I'm making sure your people take care of your name and your house properly. It, it keeps getting worse. Look at verse 15. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing the heaps of grain and loading them from, on donkeys and, and also wine and grapes and figs and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. Now, the passage continues, and as it does, we discover that there's this whole enterprise that is now being developed of selling and trading on the Sabbath. Nehemiah confronts them. He says, you, know, you, you can't keep doing this. This is wrong. And so he sets up a system where the staff will shut the gates on Sabbath, guard the gates to make sure that people aren't doing this shameful thing, which is clearly commanded in the law, third commandment, keep the Sabbath holy, right? That's how they interpreted that. And then he throws up another one of his prayers. Look at verse 22. Remember, this also, in my favor, O oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. 
a similar prayer. God, I hope you're paying attention. I really am doing good work down here on earth, and, and, and I'm creating some systems so that people will obey you, obey your laws. But it doesn't stop there. Look at verse 23. In those days, I also saw the Jews had married women of Ashad, Ammon, Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashad. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Now, <laughs> it's at this point, Nehemiah has, let's just call it what it is, a bit of a meltdown, right? And my guess is it's just not, it's not this one event that these people aren't learning the languages and stuff like that, but it's this kind of this domino effect of things that, that he's been discovering, you know, and this is just one thing on top of the next. And so now they're just letting any and everybody in the to temple area, inside the city, not preserving their heritage. I, I mean, I'm sure he's thinking, what good are these walls if we can't keep the riffraff out, right? Look at verse 25. And I confronted them. This is Nehemiah. I confronted them. I cursed them. I beat some of them, and I pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons, or for yourselves, for that matter. Now, he has good reason to be concerned. Marrying people who believed in different, a different God almost always leads one side or the other of the couple to abandon their God or to maybe mix the two together, making things actually even more confusing. So, fair enough, fair enough, right? But... <laughs> not the best way to handle things. Now, maybe a quick sidebar about marriage here is important. Just a short one if you'll bear with me. This isn't the first time that we've dealt with marriage issues in Nehemiah and Ezra. We're not here being given a model for Christian marriage in general. This is, this is not necessarily a model for Christian marriage. In fact, we see in the New Testament, Paul urges us to not marry people who are not following Jesus. We see that. But once marriage is in existence, however, we're nowhere encouraged by Jesus or Paul or anywhere in the New Testament to break up the marriage if one spouse is not following Jesus. And the Christian spouse, on, on the contrary, is instructed to act as a Christian within the marriage. So much more can be said about this, but we're going to keep going on with our story right now. Sidebar over, okay? But the drama continues. It, it gets worse. Nehemiah discovers that even one of the priests had married, of all people, the daughter of Sambalat, the ultimate bad guy. So for this priest, he doesn't just fire him. kick it, he, he literally runs him out of the city. And, and he throws up another one of his God-remember-me prayers. Asking God to remember that guy, that priest, not because he's necessarily married outside the Jewish line, but because he was a leader. And as a leader, he was misleading the people. And then, and then we finish up the book with this. Look at verse 30. Thus I cleansed them, and, and them being the remnant who had returned from exile, so the people there. Thus I cleansed them. I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work. 
And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times, for the first fruits, and then one last prayer. Remember me, oh my God, for good. Now I want to point out that I don't believe these prayers of Nehemiah, these remember me Lord prayers, I don't think they are necessarily self-serving prayers. I think they reflect a deep heart of Nehemiah, a man who desperately wants to to please God and and he wants God to to reign in all of Israel. That's what he wants. John White in his book, The Fight, says that Nehemiah's prayers make us uncomfortable. They sound a bit self-serving, but they tell us something about this man as he grows older. Nehemiah feels a bit alone in his struggle against evil. And he also seems to show his awareness of the bigness of God and his own smallness. And John White says that Nehemiah is like us all. We hope God is watching us. You know, kind of like a child looking for the approval of the parents. Look, Mom, look, Dad. Right? I, I too, struggle with Nehemiah's prayers. They didn't sit with me well at first. But the more I consider them, the more honest I think they are. Maybe I need to learn to be more honest in my own prayers as well as I learn from Nehemiah. But wow. (laughs) Wow. What a way to end a book like this, right? I mean, (laughs) can't we just go back to chapter 12 when everything was happy and they were throwing parties? I mean, that would have been... A much neater, cleaning, cleaner ending, eh? Much cleaner. There's something about the realism of the Bible. It, it, it seems to refuse to give us this romantic picture of how life should be. Things don't always work out the way they're supposed to. Unlike a movie, the hero doesn't get the girl or ride off on a horse in the sunset. Sin often spoils the story. Hmm. Let's loop back around. Let's finish where we started. What is the heart of the matter? When Zerubbabel built the temple, when Ezra reintroduced the law, and when Nehemiah built the wall, they all wanted to see the people return from exile to pick up their heads and follow God. The problem was, the problem was, the people saw these structures or the rules and and the systems as the key. If, If we build this, if we follow these rules perfectly, if we only marry certain people or only speak a certain language, if we do these things, certainly we will find favor with God, right? But God has already shown his favor. What God wants is their heart. God God tolerated Israel wanting kings. He he tolerated Israel building the temple in the first place. He, He never wanted a temple. He gave them the law which has structure and rhythm of following him. But if all these things were meant to tune their hearts to the heart of God, That's what they were for, to tune their hearts to the heart of God. What God wants is His Spirit living within them and His Spirit to tune their hearts to Him. 
The prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who were prophets before the exile, both clearly told people this was what God wanted. Listen, listen to how Ezekiel puts it. This is, and Ezekiel himself was carried away into exile over a hundred years before the walls were rebuilt, okay? So a hundred years before, uh, over a hundred years before, he is telling the people, here's the heart of the matter. It's in Ezekiel chapter 36, 24. I'm going to read it to you. This is Ezekiel speaking on behalf of God. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. So this is Ezekiel predicting this return from exile that, that he himself goes on. And once you return, he says, my plan is this. This is God. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all of your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And, and who's going to be the agent of this renewal? I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. The heart of the matter is clearly that God wants their heart. He's less concerned with their outward appearances or their rituals. What he wants is his spirit inside his people following his heart. You see, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah really are a case study of well-intentioned leaders doing everything in their power to bring about revival among the people, and yet it doesn't happen. And so God said, enough is enough. I will come down there and fix this my way. I will become one of you. I will live among you. I will show you my true heart and offer one ultimate way to my heart. And he does this in the person of Jesus. And we see Jesus saying some of the very same things trying to make it clear what the heart of God is. Jesus says it's not about the temple. It's not about legalistically keeping the Sabbath, which is, which is the day of the rest for the Jewish calendar. In Matthew 12, Jesus says that he is greater than the temple. And he says that the people are misunderstanding the purpose of the Sabbath. And in that same book of Matthew, later on, chapter 23, Jesus tells them it's not about looking good on the outside. Don't you understand? Don't you understand? It's about the heart, the inside, not, not the outside. What's really important is that our hearts are tuned to the heart of the Father who loves justice and mercy and desires that his people love the things that he loves. And he clearly shows us that in Scripture. I would suggest that one big takeaway from this book is that we see how great leadership, great intentions, great buildings and structures aren't going to save us. I mean, they may make us a bit happy, like when we first get that Amazon package, right? But then that moment is fleeting. It goes away fast. And our hearts once again, wander away from the heart of the Father. Sin gets involved. 
and I believe this is a timeless message and very timely for us here at ECC. In fact, in talking to some of those who were part of our beginnings back in 1980, this has always been on the heart of the ECC leaders. And we need to heed the lessons of Ezra and Nehemiah and fresh ways of Jesus and be careful to follow the Spirit of God. Not a leader, not a building, not a project or a plan. The heart of God. Our next series is about the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Our next preaching series. And we've chosen this because this is the key for the people of God. The work and the empowering of the Holy Spirit is what keeps us tuned in to the heart of God. That's the tool that he's given us. And as we are allowed to kind of return and to gather to in-person worship and, and, we, and, and we celebrate that, much maybe like we'll do it in the way they did it in chapter 12 of Nehemiah, we need to also be seriously asking the question, what's next? And, and, and where do we go from here? What, what is the role of this church, this sent people of God, as we listen and as we follow the Spirit of God? It's an important time in the life of this community. Next week, we're going to take some time to hear what you have been hearing from God these past months as, as we've looked at this book, as we've looked at this man, Nehemiah. Several of us have been sharing what we've been learning, so now it's your chance. I, I really do look forward to hearing that. And we, as the church of God that's been planted right here, right now, need to make sure that we don't miss the heart of the matter, the heart of God. Heavenly Father, I lift up your holy name in thanksgiving and praise, thanking you so much, Father. Thanking you so much that you've given us your spirit to live in us. Thanking you so much and praising you. Help us not to miss that. Help us not to miss your heart. Don't allow buildings and projects and plans to get in the way. Help us to stay tuned to your heart. Fill us with your spirit and guide us in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen.